Today's show is brought to you by Airtable, the all-in-one collaboration platform. Modern creative teams are pulled in a thousand directions. Maintaining a functional project plan is hard. Wrangling designers and writers, copy edits and clients, all on deadline, can get messy fast. Most collaboration tools aren't made for creatives and creative projects, but Airtable is. Airtable makes it easy to organize stuff, people, ideas, anything you can imagine. That's why leading creative teams at places like Experience Design Agency Huge, Product Development Agency Planetary, and retail brand United Colors of Benetton use Airtable. It's flexible enough to adapt to your process, but powerful enough to keep everything on schedule and let creative people be creative. Visit Airtable.com glossy today to get $50 in free credits. Barney's doesn't guarantee success. Vogue doesn't guarantee success. What guarantees success is if you actually find an audience that actually loves your product. We've been very slow to change in terms of how technology has impacted our lives. A new social network can pop up overnight and completely change our business model. Hello and welcome to the Glossy Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. I'm your host and Glossy senior reporter, Hillary Milnes, and with me this week is Adam Pritzker, the CEO of Assembled Brands. Hi, Adam. Hi. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming in. So you have a, a pretty varied background. How did you end up um, in retail? How did you end up with Assembled Brands? So I was born and raised in San Francisco by way of Chicago. Yes. Start at the beginning. Exactly. <laughs> uh, came to New York. Because actually my, my dad told me that if I stayed in San Francisco or California for too long, I would get really soft. Mm. But if I stayed in New York for too long, I would get too like hard and serious. So I needed to like balance it out. Best so actually now, brands. exactly, Assembled Brands is, we're between LA and New York. That's where our offices are. Mm. So I studied anthropology and philosophy, was always interested in people and consumer behavior and wanted to study design and wanted to study business. Mm-hmm. And so the, you know, first thing I wanted to do out of college was kind of apply to jobs that, you know, made sense within that context. So I applied to a job at IDEO. I don't know if you know, it's kind of a global design firm. They do innovation. They're kind of most famous for designing Apple's mouse by putting a butter cup over a golf ball. Oh. Uh, so, you know, kind of a design oriented firm. I applied to business school um, and D school, which is at Stanford. Mm-hmm. And kind of along that journey of discovering kind of where I wanted to go and where I wanted to work, I met a couple of people and decided to start my first business, which was an education company called General Assembly. And really about technology, business, design, that grew very quickly. We turned kind of classes into workshops, workshops into courses, uh, started to do enterprise education, and now have about 700 employees, 25 campuses worldwide, and have trained about 75,000 people. And so, you know, about four years in, that's when I decided to become a 75-year-old man. Mm-hmm. And I stepped back from my operational role there. Mm-hmm. And I stepped into the chairman of the board role and wanted to start my next company. Mm-hmm. And I felt that the tech sector was very well served with all kinds of resources, with capital, with education, with tools, but that the consumer goods industry generally, fashion, retail, CPG, beauty, really wasn't. Right. And there wasn't the kind of educational resources and tools. And what year was this? This was 2014. Okay. Yeah, Recently. 2014. Yeah, exactly. So that's when I got started. And really, I wanted to come at it from an operational point of view, because I felt that just showing up with kind of picks and shovels and tools without having actually built anything didn't make very much sense. Mm-hmm. So that's when I started a company called The Line, And that was really about exploring kind of the relationship between online and offline environments. So Mm -hmm. we built a showroom called The Apartment by the Line and a website, which is really kind of editorially driven. 
and a number of brands, including Protagonist, one called Kate, which is doing quite well, um, and a home brand called Tenfold. And the idea there was actually not just to operate brands, but was to figure out kind of where the holes were in terms of the services that we could provide to a number of different brands in the space to really empower them and help them grow. Mm -hmm. And so really where we are now is we think of assembled brands as a commerce engine, which we call the ABC engine, as in assembled brands commerce engine, because mm -hmm. um, that's so easy we want to make building a consumer brand. And so we think of ourselves as powering brands with capital and services. So would you say it's like a, almost a Silicon Valley tech boom approach to, to retail and fashion? Well, I kind of wanted to make sure not to be particularly Silicon Valley uh -huh. or Seattle-based. I wanted to really be kind of authentic to the industry as an operator and mm -hmm. come from that angle and say, look, we're dogfooding our own services and dogfooding our own capital. Mm -hmm. And through the experience of building brands and knowing how difficult it is, these are the problems we identified. For example, distribution is very fragmented. Right? You've got online, you've got offline, you've got direct, you've got wholesale. Mm -hmm. And then underneath that, you've got you know, all of these kinds of technology to, to, to power that. Mm -hmm. right? And then on top of that, you have all of these creative services. Right? In other words, you have to do campaigns, you have to do editorial, you have to do social media. And on top of that, you have to manufacture product. And that's really hard for right. one small brand to do. Exactly. So we wanted to build that engine so that designers could focus on developing product. So it, it's, it's exactly what we covered. It feels like over the past 15, 20 years, brands that might have started in a place where it was fashion was pretty cut and dry, like the road to success. You started a, a brand, you had great product, assumingly. Uh, you went to a wholesale retailer, you built a brand around it, and, and that was kind of that. It was, it was now it's all over the place. The distribution channels are varied. Um, there's so many places that you can sell. There's so many things that you, like so much distraction for the, on the customer's end. If you're trying to come at this problem, like over overhead and sort of lay down a new foundation, what, how do you like break that up into main that like missions or, or core uh, right. goals that, yeah, that brands need to have? I mean, I always start with the consumer, mm -hmm. and I think that the consumer has changed. I think the consumer wants niche brands. I think that the consumer is discovering those brands through social media. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really kind of where the market has gone. And because of that, the way you build a brand has changed a lot. Mm -hmm. So one thing we think about a lot is it's not like retail is gone. But one of the big thing that's changed is retailers used to buy goods, right? Mm -hmm. Wholesale. Yeah. They would give you a guarantee that I'm going to buy $100,000 worth of those goods. You as the manufacturer designer would then go to a bank. You would get a loan. You would go make the goods and then deliver them. Mm -hmm. And that was a very kind of virtuous cycle of you know, production and consumption. Mm -hmm. With like guarantee for business included in it. Exactly. And that's been completely broken right. because the retailers are large, uh, they're indebted, they can't make those guarantees anymore, they push the risk back onto the brand, and the brands have really discovered that the margin is really in direct-to-consumer. Mm -hmm. So one huge gap is a capital gap, because banks won't you know, fund these small brands, mm -hmm. too risky, there's no guarantee, 
And venture capitalists, I think people are realizing, are not the right investors because consumer products that are manufactured don't scale the way that software does. You can't treat apparel like tech. No, you really can't. Um, (laughs) You know, there are certain categories, I suppose, that do scale that kind of seamlessly, but they're really few and far between. And even if you are doing a CPG product, it's probably not advisable to grow it 200% a year Mm -hmm. for very long. Right. And that and think we're looking now at this group of digitally native direct to consumer brands that raise too much money and are kind of hitting walls. So so what does assembled brands then offer as a different solution? Like are you out looking you mentioned you so you started some of the like the brands that you mentioned on your own and now are you looking for brands that are either stuck with this broken model or they're brand new and they don't want to raise a lot of capital. They're looking for slow growth. Like what's your sweet set of brands that you're looking for? Sure. So kind of to talk about what we did and what differentiates us. I mean, so we started by incubating and operating these emerging kind of mobile first brands. And in doing that, we built things like in-house distribution across online and offline channels, an in-house creative studio that can, you know, rapidly generate content for campaigns, video, editorial, e-commerce, social media. We do in-house financial planning and analysis uh, to help people forecast inventory because mm-hmm. that's actually a very important and difficult thing to do. For sure. We do benchmarking of key metrics. We can score brands against other brands so we can say like, hey, your product development costs are 10% higher than the average and your marketing costs are 10% lower. Fix that, mm-hmm. right? Because your business will be better. Um, and so I think you know we've earned the respect of tastemakers and influencers through these brands we've built and incubated. And, you know, that's, that's really where we're coming from. So we're looking for brands where those kinds of services could really help smaller brands gain a lot of leverage Mm -hmm. to build equity and value for the entrepreneur who's building the brand. Mm -hmm. Right? That's our goal is like, if we build a lot of wealth for these, you know, small business owners, that is really the mission and really the goal. So what size do you think is reasonable for, for a small designer brand to grow to? Are you looking for the next billion dollar brand or is that like not even a thing that's real? <laughs> yeah, that's not something we really think about. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously we have to think about valuation. We have to think about returns in terms of you know our capital business. But you know we're looking for reasonable growth, which right. I would say, you know, 20 to 50%. And even that is obviously very high. Mm-hmm. Um, but Over how long? Call it four or five years, you know, between kind of one and 20 million in net revenue, I would say, mm-hmm. or it's kind of the range that we look at. Okay. And as we're so in, and, and I feel like this is like, this is in the news right now, like acne is looking to sell. Um, all of these brands are like either like we just had the Millie CEO on our podcast talking about what you know what what options they have as a small designer brand that employs about 85 people um and you know 20 percent growth actually isn't enough for them anymore because they had such a wholesale infrastructure that is completely stalled now do you want like what's more appealing like taking a brand like that and sort of overhauling it or getting a new one off the ground or either the latter, the latter. I would say, okay, yeah, I think it's really hard right now to be a legacy retailer mm-hmm. or a brand. Mm-hmm. And I think that people generally like to watch things blow up or fall down more than they like to see things get slowly built over time. Of course. Right. And so, you know, this, 
everybody kind of proclaiming that consumer is dead and that retail is dead. I mean, consumer in Silicon Valley is like a four letter word, Mm. right? Like no one wants to do it. People want to focus on enterprise businesses that have long-term contracts and very clear cash flow. Uh, So, so do you think it needs an industry that needs like people like you that have this position where they, they have money to, to invest in this in a place where we haven't seen it before, almost like in a consolidated way. It seems like consolidation is like is a big word for retail right now because it's so sprawled and the, the industry infrastructure does no longer lends itself to individual brands really, really making it on their own anymore. Yeah, I think the older brands and retailers will have to consolidate kind of similar to old media conglomerates because scale is kind of the name of the game there. Mm-hmm. I think in terms of small emerging brands, it's really going to be about rebundling the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So How the, do you mean? Well, the infrastructure really kind of blew up, uh-huh. right, with e-commerce. And, you know, over the last five to 10 years, all of the, a lot of the tools have actually been built. Shopify is great. QuickBooks is great. Zero is great. I mean, I could kind of go on and on. RLM is great. (laughs) The problem is in stitching all of those things together to create a seamless customer experience Mm -hmm. and simultaneously developing all of the product and content to create your brand. Mm -hmm. Doing all of that simultaneously is very hard. And it's really easy to make mistakes because who's good at all of those things? Right. Right. So we really try to stay focused on the picks and shovels and the infrastructure to allow entrepreneurs who are great at product and brand building to just focus on that. So it's interesting because as we look at brands that have come up in the last seven, ten years, Everlane, um, AYR, like all these apparel brands that they see they come at it from this way, like, oh, customers first. We have a very modern outlook on on what apparel is today disruptors, quote unquote. Um, but you have to wonder, like, is the product, and they say luxury product at, at a non-luxury price. But, it, you know, I'm sure people who have shopped these brands are like, is it luxury product? Like, how do you really, like, is, there's no designer at the at the core of these brands a lot of the time. Like, so it seems like you're trying to pr- almost protect, like, the creative side um, and give them the tools that they need to not have to worry about everything else rather than going at it from a almost like the the logistical nuts and bolts side because two still don't always marry together as well. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the way we think about things is to try to marry kind of engineering and creativity. Mm-hmm. I joke it's like, you know, trying to get somebody without a nose to smell a rose. Mm-hmm. That's what it's like for an engineer to talk to a creative and vice versa. They have right. a very hard time communicating with one another. Right. But that's really kind of what's required today. Mm-hmm. And yes, I do agree that creative is incredibly important. And I think kind of in a world where everyone's talking about automation, 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 I think that like, it's not going to replace creativity. Right. And people are fundamentally attracted to creative ideas, creative product, creative Mm -hmm. content. And I think the more automation happens, the more that will be true. Because people are really kind of seeking out humans. Right. So what technology, though, like what tools do you think is important for a brand to especially adapt early on and work into the way that the that the company operates? Because now we're looking at these old brands and like they're so slow because like they cannot. It's like, you know, everyone says it's like steering a gigantic ship. So if you're starting from scratch, like what possibilities do you see for something like automation to play a role without but not necessarily automation, just any sort of like what technology is really important to get in from the ground up? Well, 
I'm not sure I would go straight to technology, though I suppose you could call financial modeling some kind of technology. I would say that having your unit economics work from day one is very important. Okay, so starting at the very basics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you'd be surprised how many people we see who do not start, who have negative gross margins. Mm. I mean, that literally doesn't work unless right. you pour money into it and that money's being given away to the consumer. Right. Which you can argue is also a good thing because consumers are getting a lot of the value here. So you've got to build your brand in a way where you've got wholesale margins mm -hmm. of call it 50%. So that when you go direct, that's just kind of cream, mm -hmm. right? That's like you're getting 70% margins, which is fantastic. If you can blend your margins to roughly 60% and you can sell through 60% of your product, you know, without marking it down and you can grow sustainably, you can build a really great business that way. Mm -hmm. And so ensuring that you've got that from day one is a massive head start. Okay. Then it's about figuring out how to stitch together all the pieces of the puzzle mm -hmm. to ensure you've got, you know, a seamless customer experience. So, so that know. means you're shopping online. Well, do you, the brands that you're working with, like, do they have stores in their future plans or do they have stores now? Like where does that physical role play? Because you say stitch, I automatically think of, you know, bridging that online offline experience where I think a lot of the headaches happen today, but like we're looking at the, that with stores that have huge in store, like store networks, which I'm assuming these brands don't. Sure. So, you know, you can think of offline in two ways. I mean, a lot of wholesale is offline, right? Right. So people are definitely going to experience your brand in whatever offline wholesaler consumers are buying from. Mm -hmm. So I think, right. Understanding well, can they control the department stores. I'm not sure you can control the department stores. You can certainly negotiate with them. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that we're trying to provide. And as we put more brands on our platform, the more power we have, right? And building an alliance in that way is something that's important to us because right. we think of you know wholesale, offline retail, if you will, as a really important marketing channel and a potentially a profitable one, mm -hmm. which is obviously a really great way to build a business, mm -hmm. right? If you have profitable marketing, because a lot of people are, these places still have a lot of foot traffic. People may be showrooming and then going and buying online at a lower price, but they're still being exposed to product on, you know, as they're walking down the street or they're in Macy's or Barney's or kind of wherever that is. Right. Today's sponsor is Airtable, the all-in-one collaboration platform. The creative world is constantly evolving, and to keep up, you need a tool that's flexible enough to adapt to your process, but powerful enough to keep everybody on the same page. Airtable is modern software. Its fields can handle any content you throw at them. Add attachments, long text notes, check boxes, links to records and other tables, even barcodes. Whatever you need to stay organized. That's why when the team at WeWork needed a tool to manage their entire creative process from ideation to content creation, they turned to Airtable. Airtable empowers you to do your work your way. Try it today. Just head to Airtable.com slash Glossy to receive $50 in free credits. So, and I, let, let's talk about the distribution channels because, so you, how do you choose today what's what's right for the brand? How many, because you could, especially when you look at the online marketplaces, you could be all over the internet. And I think every single one of them talks about curation and just like an edited experience. But really, like if you Google like brand plus product, so many results come up. Like, um you just don't know where the customer is actually going to end up buying your product. Yeah, I think that's a that? really great point. I mean, I think that's also part of a branding exercise. Mm -hmm. It's like, how do you want to expose your customer to your product? You know who I think did this really well, and this is kind of off topic. I was talking about it last night with a friend, though. Yeah. 
is the guy who started Beanie Babies. Because one one of I know it sounds crazy, but his strategy and when you think when you think back on it, you're like that's true was specialty retailers. Mm-hmm. So he didn't start with Toys R Us. Mm-hmm. He started with all of these little toy stores where he did limited runs of very specific products. So there was a sense of scarcity and a sense of discovery. Right. That was a very particular strategy. I remember it well. Exactly. <laughs> and then what happened is you know a lot like Supreme in a certain way he built. He built a, you know, an aftermarket. So people started to use eBay and sell these things for a greater price than they had bought them. Mm-hmm. So I, don't, I thought that was a pretty brilliant distribution yeah. strategy. So Beanie Babies were the original streetwear. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's right. Commodity. Um, but now we have this like stuff problem. There's so many brands. There's so, many, so much noise that, that is trying to reach the customer. How do you look at each individual brand and, and decide like, who they sh- who they're the customer they should be targeting like i feel like we ask direct to consumer brand founders like okay well who's your customer like everyone has to be niche today you have to have an angle point of view and they'll be like well it's young women it's like who's not targeting young women like how do you know how do you get them in front of a specific audience that will actually respond to the branding and get them on this on this profitability path well that's a great question you know i don't really think about targeting specific customers at this point mm-hmm. I really look at brands and try to understand who the customer is and why the numbers are or are not working very well and kind of working from that point of view. Well, how's that different? Well, I think that building a brand from scratch is very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't meet that many people who are like, I'm going to start with a very specific type of customer and then work backwards into a product. Right. The people I've seen who are successful, like have a vision based out of a personal need mm-hmm. or desire. Okay. So what if you're, what if that's just like men's shirts? So broad. Because you started broad. That is broad. I, we don't make men's shirts. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, what products are you dealing with then? Let's start there. Yeah. So, you know, the, uh, the first thing we did was we wanted to create a very kind of uh, an experience offline. Mm-hmm. That was something that really interested us is mm-hmm. like, what does the future of offline shopping look like? And so in our showroom, we, we wanted a, a woman in particular to be able to project herself into a certain lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And so that's how we arrived at building the apartment. And that was like a VR experience, right? That, that was, no, that was a physical offline retail environment in Soho Okay, called the apartment by the line. And the idea was literally like, let's build her apartment. Uh-huh. Let's fill it with all the home goods, all the fashion uh, that she would want and wear and live in. And let's observe who comes here, how they're interacting with the product. Let's meet the designers of the product. And let's start to kind of piece together the consumer all the way through the manufacturer. Mm -hmm. And let's learn along the way kind of where the gaps are that we can fill. Mm -hmm. And so that's how we really kind of began our journey. And then from there, we're like, okay, now we can build products for her whether it's a, you know, a home brand, uh, you know, in which we're doing bedding or kind of tabletop accessories and knowing that that's an interesting direction to go in, mm-hmm. uh, or knowing that, you know, these are the kinds of apparel products that we want to develop for her. And these are the price points we want to attack because that's where the gaps are in general kind of merchandising. Mm-hmm. I think overall though, that you are right. I mean, it's, it's a very crowded market. I would ask what market isn't. Mm-hmm. Right? Like if you're building an app, 
It's like also a very crowded market. It's very crowded. So it's kind of the nature innovation works, right? right. It's like it's a crowded market. There are a lot of people who are going for it. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of capital being allocated and certain things will break out. And honestly, I think it's kind of random and lucky mm -hmm. as to who wins. And I know that's like maybe a cop out, but I think a lot of people don't think about that. I mean, one of the issues I see in Silicon Valley is like a lot of people think they're geniuses and it seems to me that they got really lucky. They were in the right place. They were in the right time building the right product. And there's a huge element of that. And do you think it comes down to who gets to the customer first and spends the most money to keep them? I don't think that there's a, a specific way to do it. I think that, you know, I think about like Glossier or Emily Weiss, who's somebody, you know, people talk a lot about. And, you know, she built a an amazing community as did Leandra Medine. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, you go, you go from there mm -hmm. and kind of build organically. Right. And I, you know, I'm glad you mentioned community because I feel like that's something that every young brand, especially wants to say that they, they have and, and try to build up. And so how do you, how do you do that today? It kind of goes back to how do you find your specific customer, but how do you get people to rally around your brand today? And you mentioned social media as a big major tool obviously so does it start there how do you how do you yeah do so if to go up a level i mean i think at the assembled brands level mm -hmm. so at the holding company level so my question is is like how do we build a community of entrepreneurs in which we can provide tools and education and community to go through the kind of you know ring of fire mm -hmm. to building a brand because it's really hard and it's really lonely and the more collaboration there is the more alliance there is between people, the easier it becomes to build your brand. Mm -hmm. So that's the community we really want to build. And I don't think there's a very big community to do that right now. I don't know if you were building a small brand, like where would you go to find other people building small brands to access tools, to access resources, to access education? Right. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> right. And in tech, you would know immediately. It's uh -huh. called Y Combinator. Uh -huh. You would apply to these accelerators and incubators and they hook you up with dinners with fellow entrepreneurs and people who have built big businesses before and potential investors. And it's really a powerful network. Mm -hmm. And in the consumer space, whether it's apparel or accessories or beauty or CPG, there's none of that. There's some fashion incubators. Yeah, I think maybe there are a few kind of small incubators, but there's nothing like the network that Silicon Valley has built right. that really provides the soup to nuts tools to really build something meaningful and something large. Right. And do you think that's because fashion, like historically, has been a very, you know, tight, held to the chest, like don't talk to anyone else, heads down kind of industry? It's not yes. very, has not been very collaborative, but now all we hear about is new collaborations. Right. So do you think that brands are kind of opening up and, and realizing that it's better to work together? And that comes up with sustainability efforts as well. There's a sustainability coalition. Um, are we sort of heading this way where brands will actually be open to working together? I think open is the key word. In technology, they call it open source. Uh -huh. And I think what people have realized is that being open is much more powerful than being closed. And as people realize that they can build tools together, and they can build scale together in these kind of decentralized networks, that's a very powerful effect in the industry. Mm -hmm. And so as a, as a holding company, especially in the US, we don't really have 
we don't have a luxury conglomerate equivalent to caring in, in France, LVMH. Like, do you see that as the future? I know you've been called the LVMH of the US, or at least that's what you're trying to do um, in the past, but. Right. Is I mean, that, I've never said that I, yeah. <laughs> d- directly. <laughs> right. Um, I think people say that because they need a comp. I mean, we mm. could not be more different than LVMH. I mean, admire them greatly. What they've built is absolutely incredible. But what they did was, you know, large leveraged buyouts right. from kind of fragmented families who are kind of multi-generational consolidated it and harvested those economies of scale. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really not what we're doing. Right. It's very old school. Right. I would say, you know, and I know this is a horrible way to kind of put things and they do it in Hollywood where it's like our new movies like Jaws and Outer Space. Uh-huh. Like I would say we have an element of LVMH. I would also say we have an element of Y Combinator. And mm-hmm. I think the way that the LVMH of today is going to be built is very, very different than the LVMH that we know was built. Mm -hmm. And so to me, what's really exciting is with all of these new tools, with all of this new technology, there are very new ways to go about building brands. And and to us, and to the point you made, it's really about openness. It's really about network. It's about tools. It's about being able to lower your costs, increase your distribution through these alliances. Mm -hmm. And and that's really, I mean, I hope it's us who does that. Mm Someone is going to do that in many different categories. So when we talk about the the infrastructure that you guys are making, like or building and the network, what I think this goes back to the beginning, but what are the like what what makes the foundation for for a brand starting today? What are the biggest challenges that that brand founders are coming to you guys and saying we can't do this on our own beyond like basic economics? <laughs> Well, I mean, I think finance is really difficult. It's like figuring out what's the best way to finance your brand. Mm -hmm. How much debt do you want? At what rate or interest rate do you want that debt? How much equity do you want? How are you going to go about building value? I think that's really difficult. Okay, so that's one. Yeah, how are you going to (laughs) think about your kind of internal metrics and your dashboards and what the key levers of growth are? Mm -hmm. Okay, so those are like need to have. What do brands want to have? They want to have the freedom to express their creative vision and their brand Mm -hmm. without being bogged down in all the other aspects of the business. Mm -hmm. So we're almost out of time, but as we're talking about, we're we're in the weeds, I think, but to take a step back, if you look at where, not just where Assembled Brands is in the next 10 years, but where retail is in general, like what is going to happen to all these small individual designer brands that have either been around for 10 years that are just starting today, have been around for 20 years. Like, are we going to see a big shakeout or consolidation? Like if you were to look at a much cleaner, modern way that fashion retail works, what would it look like? I, on, I often think of analogous industries that may be slightly ahead of the fashion and retail industry. And I often think of media Yeah, and think about how many television shows are out there there's more than you can possibly watch. Mm -hmm. There's more great shows than you can possibly watch. And so I don't think people are watching network shows as much. And those large networks, by the way, are all consolidating, right? I think if you look at the Netflixes of the world and the Hulus of the world, that's where things in media are going. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably where things are going in fashion and retail too. I don't think there's gonna be less stuff. Mm -hmm. I think there's gonna be way more stuff. And if you go on Netflix today, I mean, it's hard to figure out what to even watch. Mm-hmm. There's so much content, which again is great for the consumer, 
but also has its difficulties, right? What do you find? How do you find it? And I think that's where things like word of mouth become really important. I mean, that's where I hear about all the shows I watch. Mm-hmm. It's either on social media or from friends, which kind of gets back to the community piece of it. Right. So that's kind of where I see the future going. So it's not going to be the, the brands that can spend the most money on getting the word out there. I don't think so. It seems to me that the people who are most successful in media are people like Jason Blum, who are spending the least amount of money to make a movie like Get Out. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, those are the people who are killing it. Right. In, in a good way. Right. Right? Whereas the people who are spending massive amounts of money to make kind of old world kind of network shows or movies are struggling. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Especially as we, well, that's probably a good thing as I see, you know, customer acquisition going up by the day. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it, it creates an enormous amount of opportunity for people who want to make things and mm-hmm. for people who want to create things. And that's the thing we really want to be a part of, mm-hmm. powering that movement. Right. People know to go to you. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thanks. We're out of time, but thank you so much, Adam. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. And thank you for listening. A special thanks to Aditi Songol, the producer of this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode. And in the meantime, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher and leave us any feedback you have. 